The following podcast may contain graphic content and details that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Digital Forensics in Real Life. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Our guest today is Bill Odom, co-founder of Orbital Data Consulting. Bill began his career as a special agent with the FBI, where he was involved in investigations of everything from white-collar crime to terrorism. He's been involved in hundreds of cases since he managed the Computer Forensics Lab for the FBI Houston field office. He earned his Computer Analysis Response Team Forensic Examiner Certification, or CART Examiner Certification, while he was with the FBI. Now, Bill works as a private consultant, and part of what's so interesting about this case we're talking about today is seeing how independent consultants work with larger federal and state agencies to help solve cases. Today, we're talking about a missing persons case. It involves a vanished minor, data pulled from video game chats, a cross-border recovery operation, and lots of hours spent in the laboratory. With that, here's Bill. Hi, Bill. How are you today? Doing well. How are you, Kim? Doing great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. So tell me how you came to know about this case. So this is a rather interesting case. had an inquiry from an attorney, and he said, I've got a potential client that needs some assistance finding a runaway teenager. And I said, okay. And he goes, and they've filed a police report, but they're not getting any progress on this. So can they talk to you and can you see if you can help them? And they believe that there's a fair amount of evidence that could or should be on the computer, the family computer. And we said, of course, that's what we do. So happy to, to talk to them and find out. So that was the introduction. The, the, the way that this came into fruition is we actually met with the family. So a little bit of background on this is we, of course, are based in Houston, and the family was living in Mexico at the time, and the father and uh, one of the, the older son, the one that had run away, were Australian citizens, and the younger son was the uh, same, same father, but was born in Mexico, which is where they were living at the time with their mother. And they would plan excursions up to Houston about once every five, six months to come up and just kind of get out of the area, go see people that they knew, come buy stuff that they like to buy. And so this was one of those planned trips. Uh, They had been talking about this for several months. And one of the things that was of interest for both dad and the oldest son was that uh, the oldest son played online gaming. It was uh, a fairly popular online game uh, sort of a, a role-playing game that you, you got out and you went through space and saw different worlds and you know is a bit of an adventure game I guess of sorts and the part of the trip was to uh, build an upgraded computer that was the point because the son who was 15 at the time was very much interested into this this gaming and and they had a good computer but 
the dad supported this and supported him doing this. And so they wanted to buy a, a, and build a newer computer, do that together. And so they were coming up to Houston as part of that trip to buy the components that they weren't able to get where they were in Mexico and take that back and build the computer. Did all the family come together? They did, yes. It was the mom and dad and, and both boys. And it was meant to be about a, a week-long trip up here, and then they would head back home. Okay, so when they got here, what happened? Well, when they got here, apparently things were fairly normal. They went and started looking at the components for the computer, started talking to people that they were up here to see. And, you know, it started off pretty normal, but then it sort of changed after about two or three days, I guess, into this. What happened was is that the the son had said he wanted to meet with one of the people that he played with online. With this online gaming platform that they played with, it was a Windows-based, computer-based platform, but it had chat. And so you played with a lot of people online. You chatted with a lot of people online, you know, pretty common of any gaming software or platform. And so he wanted to meet with somebody uh, that was here. And so the dad said, sure, that's fine. And he goes, do you know, do you want to go meet him somewhere? And he said, no, no, I just, I'm going to go downstairs for 15 minutes to the hotel lobby where they were staying. We'll meet and I'll come back up. After about 45 minutes after the sun went down, the, uh, the dad and the mom were like, okay, where is he? And so they walked downstairs to see if they could find him. And he was nowhere to be found in the lobby. There was nowhere to be found on the property. And as it turned out, he had uh, run away at that point. Did you have anything to do with maybe seeing uh, if there was any surveillance that was there within the hotel lobby or anything you could look at from that perspective? So for us, that was done prior. We uh, did not meet the parents until uh, it was two, two and a half weeks after the young man had run away. But they had taken the steps to do that. And so first thing they did is exactly that. They spoke to the, the hotel to see if they had any surveillance or if they had any witnesses uh, from a combination of both. They were able to make a determination that the boy had left. He had left on his own and had actually left in a taxi from the hotel. Okay, so this other individual didn't necessarily pick him up here, but he did get in a taxi and, and he left. So. so as it turns out, there was no other individual. That was just a ruse that the teenager was uh, presenting to his parents so that he could sneak out and have a little bit of uh, runtime, if you will. Okay, so that was two, two and a half weeks before you get the computer. So once you get the computer, you're able to do an investigation or an examination of that, right? Right. So what happened, you know, prior to us getting involved is actually the family went to the police, uh, you know, is to, is to be expected that they had obviously every reason to believe that their son had ran away at that point. They didn't know why. They didn't know where he was. And so they contacted the police uh, here in Houston and filed a missing persons report for the teenager and had the very much the typical posters, information about the child running away. But unfortunately, for a couple of things, the investigator, I mean, he was very helpful, very nice, very nice gentleman, but obviously also overwhelmed because being a big city, there's a lot of runaways and, and with very little or no evidence in this case, other than he had gotten a taxi, there was very little that they could do. The best that they were able to figure out was through the police investigation prior to hiring us was that 
He had gone to the, through the taxi service, he had gone to the bus station and had left Houston. So that's the most that they knew. At that point, there were no leads. Everything was fairly cold. And when we met with them, they started talking to us about the fact of why they were here, you know, what I explained earlier, the fact of what they were doing and what this kid did. And of course, that was the point of the attorney, their attorney talking to them and, and introducing us was to say, there may be some information on the computers. If he's on there all the time, then let's look to see if there's anything that's there. So they had an old laptop that the the, the family used that was in the hotel room. But the actual computer that the teenager played with was back in Mexico. So when he hired us, the dad hired us, the family, he actually flew back to Mexico, got the computer, and brought it back to us for the purposes of doing the examination. So he wanted to make sure we had the one that he was using the most of the time. So the, the kid did use this one, but the, the other one, which is the one that we found all of the evidence on, ultimately, was a desktop computer sitting in their home in Monterey, Mexico that he brought back. That was his gaming computer? Yes. Okay, so he brings it back to you, and you bring it into your laboratory. Correct. And what do you do with it then? Very typical steps, you know, perform a forensic image and then start with the analysis. The background that we had, we knew the game that the kid played, but we didn't know anybody that he spoke with. We didn't know how often or if anything else he was doing on this computer. We didn't know a number of things. So it was really sort of that broad sweeping net to find out what digital evidence was there. So the first thing we obviously wanted to look at, though, was really centered around this gaming platform because they talked about how he did this all the time, how he spent a lot of time on there. And so we wanted to spend some time on that. What we were able to find from that piece, which was very helpful, was that he was chatting with a number of people throughout the U.S. And, and, and other places too, but primarily the U.S. on this gaming platform. He had tried to delete those chats, was unsuccessful. Some of the data was deleted, but we were able to recover that. But for the most part, the chats were intact. He had taken steps to try and hide that. But in those chats, we saw that he was speaking with a number of people and had apparently been planning to run away for several months. And this was a bit of news to the family because they had no idea that he was even considering this. They thought that, you know, by all accounts, everything was a normal household. But for whatever reason, he was looking to get out. And so he had started communicating that with people that he was playing with in this online platform for at least three or four months. And we think up to about six months is when he was really had gone back that far to start planning this. And figure out what he was going to do and how to do it. So you've got several, probably, I'm guessing, online, maybe usernames or something along those lines, maybe gamer tags, whatever it may have been within that platform to be able to find out where he's gone, right? So you've got several to look at. Correct. Yeah. There, and it was all gamer tags. There was no specific information as to where they were located. Some people would talk about where they were located. So we were able to slowly start tying that information back. But it was really just a a number of either one-on-one -on -one conversations or group conversations where he would talk about that he's planning on running away. And what was interesting about this too, even more so, was that he was an Australian national by birth. He had been living in Mexico for some time, 
but he was presenting himself as a, Ma- a Mexican national, but as one that was sort of seeking asylum, that he was being sought after because of a number of reasons, and his family didn't agree with what he was doing. So he was misrepresenting completely, or lying effectively about what, what was going on with him. And he also presented himself as being older, uh, not as 15. So he did say, you know, yes, there's issues here. My family is involved in other areas. They don't agree with what I'm doing. Uh, you know, I'm oppressed here and I need to get out. And it's almost to the point of, not quite, but close to the point of there's political implications for him to get out of there. But that was all uh, manufactured. That was an entirely him building a story to try and figure out ultimately what he was going to do. That was the beginning of his plan. And, and the chats were very, very informative about that because we saw we were able to speak to what he was presenting to everybody and how he was trying to use that to his advantage. So that was the first part and certainly was uh, very informative. We did bring this back to the parents and said, you know, what is, what is this about? Do you have any reason to understand this? And we involved the lawyer, of course, and we also said we should tell law enforcement about what's going on. We want to make sure that we're presenting our information as we're finding it. So that was, you know, first thing. The, the family was shocked. And the dad said, no, you know, I'm Australian, clearly. And, uh, and there is nothing like this. I'm a businessman. We work here. We have a simple house. And, you know, our family uh, is pretty typical of any other family. You know, where kids go to school, we do what we can. So this whole thing, you know, and, and was fabricated, and there was nothing to contradict that at all, you know, so we didn't think, okay, this kid actually was in danger. Follow along that line that, yes, he was planning this for a number of reasons, which we didn't know yet, but this is the tack that he was taking, and again, the chat messages were supporting that. So we started digging a little bit deeper on the chats for two reasons. One, as you said earlier, to see if we could identify some of the people, um, because all we had were gamer tags, and there were there was some limited information. Uh, occasionally, we get IP addresses, but it was not consistent. So, so we were we were able to tie back to sort of specific areas, but primarily it was just the the information that was in the chats themselves that would allow us to say, okay, we see, you know, my gamer tag is Houdat, but my name is Bill, and so you know that was the information that we were gleaning from those messages that helped us started piecing this together. In doing so, another thing that started popping out, which was, again, interesting, was that there was a, another person that was in this chat that um, said that they were also a Mexican national, that they had also had gone through some similar issues and had been able to uh, leave Mexico and get to the U.S. And they offered little bits and pieces here of things that they did to get out of Mexico to, you know, to get away from the suppression. And that was all, all of this was done in group chat though. There were never any one-on-ones between the teenager and, and this other person. Those chat messages um, were very much meant to elicit information from other people in the, in the group. So you may say something like, well, I had that same issue and, you know, this is how I planned on crossing the border and to get out. And a number of other people in a chat would say, no, that's stupid. Don't do that. This is what we would do. Or if we were in your situation, you know, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? So it was all very much informational. Well, obviously we were interested in who this other person was. Why were they presenting this information? What were they doing? 
And so we started digging further into the chats. And what we found out is that it was also the same kid. He was using this other chat session as a evidence gathering session to elicit this information from other people. He didn't want to say, I'm asking this information. He wanted it to look like somebody else was doing that. But the digital evidence all supported that he had created both of these accounts, that he had used the second account to for this very purpose. So he would, and we found the chat sessions where he would literally switch back and forth between one and the other and pretend to be this other person and then back to himself and then back to this other person. And that the whole point was to elicit help from people, but not directly. It was actually very smart for a 15-year-old kid, you know, we thought, because it was very much um, intelligence-driven. It was very much to the point of, how do I do this without saying, how do I do this? Did he get any takers? He got a lot of good information that I actually he used when he did run away finally, part of which was how to move throughout the U.S. If Once you get to the U.S., there, there was not a lot of information that was useful for him to get into the U.S., but he didn't need that anyway because he was already coming to the U.S. legally. And it was just for, you know, a, a personal trip and then going back home. But once he was in the U.S., the way that he could move through the U.S. to get to his final destination, a good part of that was provided by a lot of these people. And it wasn't knowingly. You know, they felt like they were trying to help in a situation like, oh, we would do this or, oh, that's horrible. You know, why? Yeah, you know, if you get to the U.S., call me or if you get to the U.S., do this. And a lot of that was what he ended up doing ultimately for, for his his goal. So their suggestions were those... Did those lead you down the path to find maybe where he'd gone? They did help, yeah, because at that point we knew where to start looking. Um, like we said, from from what the police had done already, they knew that he had left the hotel, that he had gone to the bus stop, and they knew that from the bus stop they were able to figure out that he had gone from Houston to Dallas on the bus. After Dallas, that's where the trail went cold again because he didn't take another bus anywhere. He didn't do anything else. So what we had to start looking at was evidence of who he was talking to during, you know, leading up to that. And then what he was doing that would have prepared him for that. So we learned a couple of things at that point. One, you know, Dallas was not his goal. He wasn't trying to get there. He was just using that as a launching point. I guess he had, he knew that he was going to be tracked, uh, you know, that through taxi and through bus that, you know, there's some level of investigation that could be done after that. But from there, when it went cold, that's where he started implementing some of these other things that people were telling him to do. And one of those, which was what he did and which was, you know, not very good, but was he started hitchhiking. The way we figured that out was through, again, two pieces of digital evidence. One is we were still digging through the chats and we started looking to see if we could figure out what his plan would have been in terms of how he was going to go from the bus station to get to wherever else he was ultimately trying to get to. And again, at this point, we didn't know. That was still what we were trying to get to, but we were a little bit closer. The second was is that we realized we had been focusing a lot on these chats that we had not spent time looking at some of the other digital evidence. So we did go back and sort of do a refresh. You know, we had a lot of good information. We had information we had presented to the police already, but we, you know, we still didn't know what his bigger plan was. In a very simple 
process, we went back and looked at what he did just before he left Mexico because, again, he'd been planning this for some time. He knew he was coming to the U.S. for the purposes of getting the computer, but he was using that as an opportunity to run away. So we went back to said, okay, when did you, when did they leave Mexico? So we asked the family again, when, what was the time frame for that? And so we took a look at the prior 24 hours to see what he was doing there. We had not started with that. We had started with, you know, again, these chat sessions, but we went back to that. And the first thing we saw that was right off the bat is he had deleted a bunch of documents and things that were covering stuff up. From there, we found a number of maps. It was Yahoo Maps are still a little bit more popular then, so they were maps and also a plan, if you will, an outline for what he was going to do. And that outline was just a document that he had created that he deleted just before they left. And it basically said, get taxi from hotel, take bus from bus, do this with ultimate goal of, you know, meeting these people. So now he didn't use people by name, um, but there were, there was enough information that we were able to go back and tie that to the chat session. So then we were able to start seeing, okay, we do know who some of these people are, or at least by gamer tag, but we see that this is somebody that's important for him. And so that's going to be part of his plan for moving through. And it wasn't just one. It wasn't like going from A to B. It was like A to K. You know, there were several steps in this plan along the way. So again, it was very well thought out, particularly in my mind for a 15-year-old that you wouldn't think, you know, would be doing that. But he had clearly spent a lot of time doing this to, to prepare for this. Did, did the child have a cell phone? No, uh, he did. He did not have one with him. He uh, certainly that would have been something we would have tracked if he did. But um, he I think the, that he did have one at the time, but he didn't take it with him because, again, the intent was he was going to be in uh, in the hotel lobby for a few minutes meeting with this person that didn't exist. And that was just opportunity for him to leave. So I don't know if he. I'm sure it came to mind that, you know, that could be tracked, but even if that didn't come to mind, he didn't want anybody calling him anyway. So he purposely left his phone behind so he'd be sort of incognito and could slip away pretty quickly. Do you know what he had with him so that he would know where he was going next? Or did he did he have it written down? Had he printed out that document you were referring to? He he did print out the document, yes. Thank, thank you. I did not mention that. He did print it out, and he had a backpack with just some basic stuff, uh, a couple of bottles of water. He had some birthday money that he had received and was, you know, just a little bit of enough to get him to buy a bus ticket, enough to get him and support him for a couple of days, but not much more beyond that. It was just a backpack, nothing else. We started then with who was the first person on his sort of to-do list. And where was that person located and what would he do to get there? So we were able to tie that from Dallas, there was a person that was in Kentucky that he had been in contact with. And this was also one of the people that had said, yeah, you know, if you're ever in this situation, let me know. We'll work something out. We didn't find any further chats around that, but there was a little bit of contact information. And it was enough on his computer that we were able to tie that back to an actual person that was in, in Kentucky. So we took that to the police and said, let's try this first and see if he's there. From there, they did say, okay, well, we spoke to that person. They did say yes, that they were contacted by them and that they said that they would help them, but they'd been 
all this time chatting on a chat. So they had no context to what this person looked like. They had no context to what accent they had when they spoke. And what happened was they thought they were helping a 20-plus-year-old Mexican national. And what shows up at their door is a 15-year-old Australian national with a very strong Australian accent. And they were a bit taken back and said, okay, well, who are you? And he said, well, I'm so-and-so. And they said, well, you know, our, do your parents know where you are? And he said, well, I, I'm 18. I, you know, I said, I, I may have changed some of the story because I didn't want to give that up. I didn't want, you know, if the government's looking or somebody's reviewing this, I don't want them to figure out it's me. So I changed some of it up, but I'm of legal age and I'm still trying to get out. Everything else I said is true. At that point, they gave him a little bit of money and said, here you go, get on the bus. And they put him on a bus to the next stop. To the point that it worked for the kid, that this was part of his plan. You know, he didn't want to stay there. That wasn't his goal as to where he was wanting to get to, but it was part of what he was trying to do. So for him, it succeeded. Did you know at that point where he was going? We still didn't know, no. We were closing in, but we still had a little bit of work to, to go through this. But that did help, obviously, with the, you know, supported that everything that we had been looking at was right. And again, for the family, this was all news. And it wasn't that, you know, they were like in disbelief. It was they were in total shock. And even the, the younger brother, who was still there too, he said, I, you know, I never knew my brother was capable of this. And, you know, the, the younger brother was a couple of years younger and, and also very intelligent. But he was shocked, I think, as much as the, the parents were, because not only did he not think that his brother was capable of doing something like this, but he never even considered that he would. I mean, the parents didn't either, but, you know, certainly the brother, he thought they were close, and I think he was a bit hurt and a, a bit shocked. And of course, you know, he's he's taking this as a younger brother, too. He misses his brother. He wants his brother home. He wants his brother safe, and he wants to be able to do the stuff that they were doing together, you know, before. But you could tell that it was a complete shock to the entire family. And because of that, every piece of information that we were digging up was a bit of a surprise for everybody. And so we would, again, take this. We take this to the family. We take this to the lawyer. And we take this to law enforcement to help them build this along and try and move this along. But it was not, there was never that aha moment where the family said, oh, I know where they're going. There was never that aha moment through the investigation until, again, we dug through the digital evidence that helped us piece this together to see what, what ultimately was going on. From the time that the folks in Kentucky talked to where he had stopped over, what was the time differential from when they were able to give that piece of information to the investigators in Kentucky? How long had it been since he'd been there? It was still about two and a half weeks. We were still about two and a half weeks behind. So from the time that he left from the hotel, he went straight to the bus station, took an overnight bus out of there and was in Kentucky. So, you know, the time for that. So within the 24 hours or 36 hours, certainly he was in Kentucky, but that was still at the early stages of this. And, you know, the parents were still trying to figure out what was going on. And we're just then at that point filing a missing persons report. So for us, it was always a two and a half week lag, basically, and up until he was found. He moved very quickly. He followed his plan. He did pretty much what he said he was going to do. Along his route, there were you know a couple of days he would spend a little bit of time here. We found out or a little bit of time there, but it was really always a transition. And that was consistent with what his outline was that we had recovered. 
from Kentucky, we found that he was headed further north. And at one point, we thought he was going to Canada because he had reference to going across the border and uh, how to get across the Canadian border. And again, this ties back to some of the information that we found in the group chat as to what was going on. So we really thought that that's where he was headed. And, and I will say this, we never, he may have ultimately been trying to do that too. We don't know, but he never made it up into Canada as far as we can tell from what he did. But he certainly had an interest in getting up there for whatever reason. I think there was a particular person he was interested in seeing up there. We took the approach, okay, now let's look and see who was he talking to more? And so we did find ultimately that there were a couple of people that he was spending a lot more time talking to, a lot more people that were interested in helping him, if you will, and also those that were a bit more sympathetic or empathetic to his, you know, quote unquote problem and that they were willing to take him in if something came about. So those were the ones that we wanted to look at a little bit more. And based off the information we got from uh, the person in Kentucky, and where he got on the bus and where they were headed, we were able to then take the next stop, which was a little further north. And that person, once they realized he was not who he said he was, that they immediately just closed the door and shut him out. And that was it. And they didn't help him. They didn't do anything else. And, and you know, the, the police said that the evidence supported that, that there was no reason to believe otherwise. But that meant he was not there. Where was he still? So we went to the last person on the list, and that one was a little bit harder to dig up, but through a little bit of work and through actually, again, taking this back to the police, they were able to get a subpoena very quickly on um, the user information. And they were able to get that enough information to get a name. And that was a person that was located in La Crosse, uh, Wisconsin. For us, that was going to be the end of the trail, though, and we had no information beyond that. And that's why I say that, you know, he may have been using lacrosse as his launching point to try and jump into Canada and knew that that was going to be the next big hurdle. But that also meant that he was going to have to probably spend a little time there and try and figure that out. But again, this is at two and a half weeks later. From the time that we got the evidence, I mean, it was, we were about 48 hours for our time at this point, you know, two days into it, but we'd been communicating everything as we could to the police and to the family. We went back and said, okay, we think that he may be in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Based off of what your information is, that's consistent with what we're seeing on the computer. We say that our recommendation is to go over to their house and see if you can find something. The investigator came back he got uh, called up the police and across and, you know, was able to make contact up there and said, here's what's going on. Can you please go by and do a check at this address, you know, see if this kid is there. And so they went by and it was, um, you know, a, a typical house, I guess, in, the, in a neighborhood, suburban neighborhood, we knocked on the door, did a search of the house. The kid wasn't there, but the police were, you know, very uh, intuitive, if you will. And, they realized that something wasn't quite right there, so they decided to wait, and so they left, said thank you, and then they parked uh, just out of view and waited to see if something happened, and about an hour later, they saw somebody go back into the house, and so this time, they took a different approach, and there were two of them. One went to the back, one went to the front, and knocked on the door again, and as soon as the um, door opened or just before the door opened, then the kid jumped out the back window. And of course, there was a lacrosse investigator waiting there for him. And 
took him into custody at that point and realized, yes, that's who this is. That's why we're here and was able to safely secure him and take him into custody. And so within about, I think it was about two or three hours after that, they called the investigator and we were actually with the parents when they got the call and told us that, yeah, that we found him and we've got him. And overwhelming for us. I mean, the family was extremely shocked, was happy, but, you know, relieved and sad and everything at the same time, as you can imagine. And we were drawn into that a little bit too. It's just like, thank goodness, you know, that he's okay. He's still alive. He's here. And you've, you know, that you'll see him again. And, you know, obviously there's a lot to discuss and a lot to work through, but at least you have that opportunity. Absolutely. So how long was he planning to stay there in Wisconsin? Do you know, or do you know the rest of his plan? We, we don't. Again, we think, um, he would not, he certainly wouldn't talk to us. And at that point, the family was more concerned about getting him some help. What they did tell us is that they don't know if he was planning on staying there. They do think that he may have had a reason to go into Canada. We weren't able to provide any information as to who else he may have been going to up there. That was the one area that the digital evidence gave us an indication, but it was a bit of a black hole. What what we did understand is that the person that he was with certainly had ulterior motives and, uh, you know, that was not the, he was not helping him for his interest. He was helping the kid for his own interest and, you know, which was not the same and certainly was not in the best interest of any kid. So I, I believe that person did end up getting arrested, uh, certainly at minimum for assisting in this. At that point, he knew, even if he could argue that he didn't know who this kid was when he got there, he certainly knew who he was after that. And the kid had been there for well over a week by that point. So there, you know, there was a number of things that just didn't add up on that part. So there may have been reason for that kid to decide to maybe stay there for a bit for whatever reason. But at the end of the day, it, you know, that's, that's, there's certainly a lot more that, you know, the, the behind the scenes for what was going on. And I know that the family was doing everything they could to, to get help for their son, to make sure that, you know, he didn't have to do this, to know that he didn't have to do that. When they went to the home and found him, he still jumped out the back window, though, and he wasn't wanting to be caught himself, right? Well, yeah. Yeah, he was determined. And, um, yeah, and the one part I didn't really get into on this story is that when they did pick him up, they did a health assessment of him. And he, um, I mean, he was dehydrated and, you know, as can expected, but he also uh, was tested positive for three venereal diseases, which he had um, certainly acquired during his two and a half week trip. So, Again, the end result of what the, certainly the person that he was with was um, never, you know, in the, in the best intent. Um, I don't think that he, the, the, the kid had planned for that, but I do think that he was still determined not to go back home even after all that. Even with whatever he was going through, he was determined not to go home. And that certainly came up as a as a point of the investigators' questions too. Is why, you know, is there reason to believe this kid's being abused? Is there reason to believe that there's something going on? And nothing ever showed that. And they asked us also about the digital evidence if there was anything that he described being abused or anything like that. And there was nothing ever. If I recall, the kid even admitted that he wasn't abused. He just did not want to be there. 
I think what boiled down to is that he had he had been living in Australia with his dad and his mom and his brother. And a few years prior, it was probably about four years prior, they moved to Mexico. He did not want to be there. He just had enough. He was just fed up. And so for whatever reason, he decided that that was abusive, that everything indicated the parents were taking care of him. But at the end of the day, he just determined to go. And he was convinced that they didn't care about him because he couldn't move back to Australia because he was not where his old friends were. He was in a different place. He didn't want to be, you know, not speaking the language very fluently. And so he's like, F this, I'm out. Wow. Goodness sakes. That's not based off of digital evidence, obviously, but that is based off of what the investigator shared, what the observations were. And I mean, we did, that was a, that was a legitimate question where we at, we were asked to see if there was any evidence of, uh, you know, that he spoke about abuse from his family, if there was any evidence of that from what we saw. And, you know, the answer was no. I mean, we presented everything that we had back to the police anyway and said, here's everything. And the, the family was very forthcoming and were, you know, said, yeah, here's, you know, what's going on. So, again, I think the, you know, from, to me, it's only hearsay from what the kid said, you know, that's through the lawyer and through the, the family. But, um, I, you know, there was never any indication that he was abused in any way. He just was done, did not want to be part of that lifestyle and thought that this was a better option for whatever reason. To be 15 and, and that smart and to be able to pull that off is incredible on one aspect, but then also the other aspect lets you know that a smart kid may not have had the same opportunities that he'd had, you know, where he maybe lived before. So that may have had a little something to do with it. I mean, again, who, who actually knows and you can, you can guess all day, but what ultimately it came down to was he was willing to go through all of that for something else. Well, and the, the level that he went through that, I mean, to me, it's still a bit shocking because I consider what I was doing at 15. I was not, well, I wasn't online at 15, but I was, even if I was, I wasn't thinking about how I would present this other persona that would be something that would be used for the purposes of trying to gain information. I mean, that's the sort of stuff they taught us in the FBI. That's not something that a 15 year old in my mind typically comes up with, but you're right. That does go to show how smart this kid was, how, how willing he was to go at this. And the only resource he had was a computer to the outside world. And he used that to its fullest to achieve his goal. For us, we want to help people with our work, no matter what we're doing. You know, it's objective work, right? It's not subjective. You know, it's a forensic process where you present the evidence and the evidence told us that this is what was happening. But at the same time, it's, it's about real people. And you know, this is different than some of the cases that I've worked in over the years and that you don't know where this person is. You know that there's a chance they could be alive. You know there's a chance that they could not be alive. And the family, they're, they're hoping for the best, but they were planning for the worst. And that's why they came to us in the first place, because they needed closure on this and as quickly as possible. We were fortunate that we were able to provide that, that part of that closure for them to say, yes, not only is he alive, but we helped you get him. Certainly could have gone any other way, right? And certainly there's other components about that. But at the end of the day, that was what we were trying to do. And the digital evidence got us to that point. 
you know, at this time too, I knew a number of the investigators, the digital forensic investigators for Houston police, very, very capable people, very overworked people too, as you can imagine, you know, I, I feel for folks that are still actively doing this in law enforcement, because I know there is a backlog and that backlog doesn't get any better. It just keeps getting, you know, worse and worse. Certainly, a, you know, a police department the size of Houston, not everybody understands that those folks are even there. That was certainly the case with the investigator that we were working with. So we were happy to provide that information. And he said, because I didn't even know you could do this. And I said, not only can you, you've got people in your own department that are really good at what they do. I said, I know them personally. Go introduce yourself. I said, here's, here's who they are. Please go talk to them because this can help you with your job. This can help you with what you do. Please, you know, take advantage of this and, and don't forget that. And even if they are not able to do that, let us know. I mean, if there's something that we can do to help later, we would you know, be happy to. Hopefully he went and talked to them. We didn't hear from him again. So I'm assuming that he worked it out within his own department. But, you know, in 2022, I think that's still uh, something that uh, police are running up against all the time and trying to do their investigations. They don't realize what capabilities are always there or what capabilities are there. It's still a bit of an uphill battle. And there's a lot to, to do to get to that. There, there's help out there. There's people that are willing to do this, including us. I mean, we would still do that to this day and would be happy to help it when we could. But it's really about uh, just understanding that, yes, there's options to help you with your investigation, whatever that investigation is. And that, that digital evidence can give you that one piece of data that you need. And that, you know, that may be enough. And again, in this case, it was. Tell me about that meeting that you had with the parents and when they received that call. Tell me how that went. It was it was overwhelming uh, um, emotionally during this whole time. I mean, I, as you can probably imagine, the dad was very much doing everything that he could. He was being the strong person in the family. The mom was very subdued because she was hurt. She didn't understand. It was very hard for her. And of course, the you know the younger brother was was very similar. But when that news came in, honestly, we all started crying. You know, everybody was just a bit of a relief. For the family, they were they were displaced from their home. They had been living out of a hotel, the same hotel, for nearly three weeks by this point. You know, they had planned to come and then go home, but they didn't want to leave without their son. So they were physically exhausted, mentally, emotionally exhausted. And so, you know, it was a rush of everything of relief just coming in for them. We were at this for a few days. They were, you know, at it for, obviously it's their son, so for life, but just an overwhelming amount of uh, emotion and relief. And the mom who had talked to me, but again, was still very upset and close. She just came over and gave me the biggest hug and said, thank you for finding my son. And, you know, that was, that was it. You know, that was enough. I, I, I think this is a fantastic story. We don't always get the happy ending to stories that start out like this and, and to cases that start out like this. And just the fact that you're able to follow the data in order to be able to answer some questions and working hand in hand with investigators. And, you know, you have this challenge of going across different states to be able to, you know, reach out to folks and work with other investigators. And also you've got your own business, right? Correct. Yes. And 
you're working with the folks that are law enforcement and attorneys. So you've got an entire team of people that you're having to reach out to at times whenever you find something. And you had a lot of challenges in order to be able to get all this piece together. And this is a great one. This is a great ending to this. And like you said, I, I know that it was a heartfelt thing, had to be for everybody. And, you know, still things afterwards, you know, just the whys and everything else. But for them to have that opportunity to bring their son home was amazing. Yeah. And I, you know, and I agree. And I think, you know, for us, that's why I consider this a huge success for me personally to be involved in this, you know, in my law enforcement career, any law enforcement can attest, I'm sure, is that you see the best in people and you see the worst in people and, and, and you see everything in between. And sometimes it's disheartening. But at the end of the day, what I was trying to do and what I continue to try and do, even on the, you know, not doing criminal work is to get to the answer, get to what that what that is. And the only way you're going to be able to get to that is to find that data. I knew what challenges the family was going through because they didn't know where to look. If they could have done that themselves, they would have, but they couldn't. No, why would they? They're not, you know, they don't know what to look at. They're not thinking about this with investigator glasses. They're thinking about this with their family glasses, right? That's what I would do too, if I were in that situation. The investigator is working his tail off trying to find not just this kid, but you know, hundreds of other kids that have run away for whatever reason. And he's got a continual uphill battle. And all he needs is that little bit of evidence, that piece that he can do something with. And so for us, you know, it's the, the results were great, but at the, uh, that's what we were trying to find. It's the same thing that we're always trying to find. What was that piece that can be useful for what you're trying to get to? In this case, it wasn't to find somebody committing fraud. It wasn't to find, you know, that they sent an illicit email. It was to find where this kid was, and it wasn't to solve why. It was just, can we find him? That was the goal. We know we're on a time limit here because the longer this takes, the harder it's going to be to find. And we were concerned about that even going through these steps. We knew he was here. We Great, that validated what we're finding, but we still don't have it. Is he here? He was. We turned him away. Okay. That, you know, so it's a lot of steps to get to that process. But fortunately, like you said, at the end, it worked out and the evidence supported everything to get us there. It was, it was work and it was emotional. And, you know, I, I will say we, me and my team, we didn't sleep for better part of two days to try and solve this, which, you know, is not the norm, but we were invested in in finding the him and the safe return so at least at least that goal was achieved fantastic well thank you so much for being here with us today bill to tell about this case and appreciate you being here well thank you kim i really appreciate it too and thank you for the opportunity to speak about this well that's it from us today thanks to bill for coming on Digital Forensics in Real Life is a production of Magnet Forensics. This episode was mixed and edited by Phil Frucklidge with production help from Lindsay Ward. Our original theme music is by Rick Andrade. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>